Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Blake Dean and Reverend Aaron Moniz, two of the hosts of the Mutuality Matters podcast. The Mutuality Matters podcast was co-created by Blake and Aaron for the gospel empowerment of men and women, and it explores the impact of egalitarian work worldwide. Featuring conversations with leaders, pastors, authors, scholars, activists, and practitioners on women, men, equality, and the Bible, Blake and Aaron have since partnered with CBE International, added new hosts to the podcast, and have become a part of CBE's extensive library of free online resources. So welcome, Blake and Aaron. Hello, good to be here. Yeah, we're excited. So I would love to start with you guys talking about what led you to start the Mutuality Matters podcast in the first place. You have to start on this one because it was your idea. Okay. Yes. So I sort of (laughs) roped Blake into this a little bit. I like to say I said yes initially because she made it like the easiest thing to say yes to. Yes. I I also have like a a certain force of personality that I definitely imposed because I really wanted to do this. But to be fair, to be fair, podcasting was was really something that that emerged because of the things that were already present in our friendship. Yeah, that's true. um, We spend a lot of time just talking about gender theology. We Mm -hmm. also spend a lot of time listening to podcasts. And when it came down to it, where we were sort of comparing notes about who, what podcasts are you listening to? Like who's talking about gender theology from from a place that is is nuanced and faithful and biblically sound and isn't falling into um, too far of some of the, the polarizations. There's a post-Christian feminist, you know, view. And then there's like very traditionalist views, but who's sort of working in between those things. And (laughs) and we couldn't, we couldn't, there were just weren't many people out there um, hardly at all. In fact, we had trouble finding any. And so we just started taking the conversations we were already having and putting up a microphone in front of them. And we started recording and eventually we realized, wow, there's people out there way smarter than us that can, can speak more to this. So we started inviting guests and to this day, it's still, although CBE really legitimizes us in ways we could never be that legitimate. um, It's just the things we love to talk about and the Mm. things we were talking about anyways, and just trying to invite more people into that and, Mm. uh, and hopefully help some folks and connect with some folks there. Yeah, I think, I mean, it blew my mind when we had some like scholars and authors and practitioners that like we really looked up to email us back and say yes about a year ago when people were like, yeah, I'll come talk to you. It was like, what? I don't know. It's a joke. And, um, but it's been so, I mean, selfishly, it's kind of like, I don't care if people listen to it or not. I have fun doing it, but in a more like probably more helpful perspective, it's like, I love getting to share people who are like pillars in the conversation, like a Carolyn Custis James, but I also love getting to say, Hey, like Dr. Natalie Carnes just wrote this amazing book that you've never heard of and you need to go read it. You know what I mean? Like I love, I love getting to do that and getting to expand. The reason why I said yes to doing it was because we were already talking about it. The reason that I keep doing it, other than my dear friend, Aaron Moniz, you're welcome, is like getting to kind of nuance and expand the conversation of gender theology. um, Because as important as 1 Timothy 2 and Ephesians 5 are, it's like, okay, so once we... Once we're on the same page about what mutuality means, what does that then mean? What are the implications of that? How do we think about that theologically looking back on the church fathers and mothers who maybe don't share our perspectives on gender? What do we keep? What do we leave? How do we do that with without chronological snobbery? Yeah. What what how do we read the old the women in the old testament? And some of especially like a Hagar. Like, what do you do with Hagar? That's a Mm -hmm. real tricky politic. Sure. And so getting to that's the thing I love is getting to watch the conversation kind of um branch out. Yeah, not even expand, but the the ways that it's already taking up space. 
Yeah. 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 Well, I'm so glad you are. I'm so glad you're doing it because I'm enjoying listening and have gotten so much from it. To clarify, before we go on, you guys knew each other from Barry. Can you talk about that relationship there? Sure. I, I came into college and I was a freshman and I had emailed, I was interested in issues of gender justice generally. And so I had emailed the women and gender studies professor and I said, put me in your class, please. (laughs) And now being on this end, I'm sure she was like a dude. Yes. Like you, (laughs) you are welcome. (laughs) And, um, I met Erin through that because she would come and guest lecture about like the intersection of the Christian faith and feminism, particularly religion and feminism broadly. And um, so you, I left that lecture and I emailed her and I was like, I have approximately 14 more questions. (laughs) And so, so it kind of started out as like, oh, here are some questions and things that I have. But then over time, as we got to know each other, but also as like roles and like relationships kind of changed. It was, mm-hmm. it really became a, oh yeah. Okay. So we're on the same page, but so what do you think about that? Like, or did you see that Christianity Today article? Yikes. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's kind of where um, it kind of started as like a share of your wisdom. And then it became like a, oh man, what is this nonsense? I appreciate you guys having those conversations. Cause when I listen in one, I can tell that you all really enjoy talking about it. <laughs> and I kind of wish I was in on some of these conversations. So honestly, well, come on. <laughs> that's why I was happy to have you guys on the podcast. But kind of leading into my next question is why does mutuality matter so much mm. to both of you? Where did that start? Yeah. Yes, this was something that we dug into pretty deeply when we were starting the podcast, because mm. as Kinsey, I'm, I'm sure you just listening to your podcast, I know you have thought deeply on this as well. The word mutuality is is really a beautiful word, a word that I think yeah. needs to get some more play. If you if you Google it, you're actually going to get a lot of um it's like business leadership about, books. Yeah, like there's the word, the mutual is a word that actually is, is much more in the industry and in finances than it is in us talking about um, interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's really such a beautiful word because, um, in, and people can go back and listen to some of the early shows that we did. We were breaking down terms and how sometimes terms like complementarian and egalitarian are not always helpful um, categories. It can be misleading. Yes. And we we go into depth about that if anybody wants to fact check us on that. And and we have a whole episode on what we mean by mutuality. But um, the fact that that ultimately as disciples of Christ, we are are looking to be in right relationship. Mm -hmm. We are looking to be righteous people in right relationship with God and with each other. And there's a lot that is foundational to some of that that we just don't end up talking about as much when we talk about interpersonal relationships, things like reciprocity, mutual respect, mutuality. And so when we were thinking about something that would capitalize, would be sort of an orienting piece for where we wanted to keep coming back to with our podcast and with our conversations, yeah. mutuality was this, this sort of beautiful word that showed this, um, this togetherness, this withness, this men and women yeah. mutually commissioned for the work of the gospel on mission side by side together in both the church, the home and society. Also, the thing that I love about the language of mutuality is it implicates not only romantic, sexual, or marital relationships between men and women. Because like, so Aaron and I are not married. We are married to to other other wonderful people. And it's like, but like, we still have a boundary, beautiful, mutual 
friendship, right? Like a friendship not built on power dynamics, but built on mutual respect. And I think that's important. And I know that that's, that can be complicated depending on context or kind of the ground and places that kind of we've been taught or raised or formed. I was going to say though, like mutuality in general between men and women really came for me really early. And it was, I kind of, it was a backdoor. I'm a triplet and I was raised by a lot of, I was raised by my parents, but they were outnumbered. So I was raised by um, a couple really beautiful, wonderful, committed single women who um, like I call like they're like the army that raised me. And so really it wasn't, oh, what about male and female relationships? It started for me reading or listening to sermons about men and women broadly and going, Mm -hmm. well, that doesn't work for them because who are they going to submit to? Like, so it wasn't even a rebellious thing. It just was going well, that doesn't work if you're not married. Like what? Like, right. This isn't so fitting how across does this the work? board. Exactly. So it was more a seeing the glorious beauty of friendship that my parents prioritized. And then also like the particularity of their life experiences that sure. I went, that I kind of carried with me. And that got me to mutuality and gender theology. And what, how do we, how do we talk and speak about this both biblically and kind of practically? How do we, how do we wed those two? So that's my, like, that's kind of my like more tactile answer. Yeah. Which is, it wasn't even like, it started as like, oh, that doesn't work for CC, so I'm confused. Along those lines, Aaron, would you be willing to share what your own journey toward a mm. theology of mutuality has looked like? Oh, gosh. Yes. I'm gonna, yeah, let's tighten this one up. All time, you don't worry. Yeah, so... <laughs> I was raised in a church that took scripture very seriously. We took um, church community very seriously. I will always appreciate my church upbringing in uh, the Southern Baptist uh, world, like for a Mm -hmm. lot of the gifts that it gave me, um, Mm -hmm. developing my faith. But that's where the first collision came for me because I got my first call to ministry when I was around 11 and thought that that it would be received well because we were church people. Like we were there every time the doors were opened and that this child going into the ministry was, I was going to be very well received. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And in, in my, you know, my parents were, were, were kind and polite about it, but they regurgitating what they had been taught basically Mm -hmm. told me like, there are things that women don't do and youth ministry is one of them. And so that was kind of the initial point for me, right? I started going, huh? I don't think I knew that. That's weird. Okay. I'll just, I'll just move on. And, and, and I went through a number of evolutions as I continued to just develop my own faith and, and seek out, you know, the, just the Lord in my own life on a number of ages, this theology of gender also ran parallel to, to just my, my faith journey, but it kind of came to a head when I was considering Mm. getting my master's. So at the time I had a construction business and (laughs) forget about your construction business. (laughs) And so I'm, I'm, you know, in these houses cutting baseboard, you know, late at night. And I'm listening to Luther's large catechism in my earbuds. And my husband was like, (laughs) my husband's like, why, why are you not going to seminary? Like, what's, Mm. what is this? And I thought, well, you know, pragmatically speaking, it all fits, but do I want a dog in that fight? Because as soon as yeah. I sign up for seminary, the questions are going to come. Sure. People are going to ask me. You're a lightning rod. Yeah. And, and this was, this was something I was so glad I had my husband with me on this journey because he was, uh, he would consider himself a feminist long before I felt anywhere comfortable with that. 
I can relate those concepts. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it was just something that we, we really prayerfully considered together and, um, I had his support and his just partnership in pursuing these things. But initially too, that, that was sort of a mirror with, with our own relationship. Mm. So mutuality in, yeah. and of course, I mean, you know, this podcast we know is very much centered around marriage and yeah. those relationships. So, so to tie that in, when we first got married, we actually ascribed to this idea of biblical headship. And we, we use that language, mm. not in the traditional way. We, we didn't, we knew it wasn't going to be practical in, in how, like, it wasn't going to have to diminish a person. Like we knew that, that one way or another, there must be a way for us to be faithful to biblical headship in a way that wouldn't diminish either one of us. But we just sort of started figuring that out. And when we started living life together as a married couple, we began to realize that the practicalities yeah. of, and, and I know you've talked about this before, Kenzie, and it's just it truly pragmatically, we found it untenable. We couldn't figure out how to make that work in a structure that didn't rely on some sort of hierarchy. When it came down to it, what we saw about the gospel and what we saw about our relationship was that we were both people in need of Christ. We are both people in need of the gospel. We are both filled with the Holy Spirit and guided by Christ in us, but also very broken by sin. And so neither one of us felt particularly equipped <laughs> yeah. to, to be yeah. the one for the other in this sort of spiritual headship way. And at the same time, we also knew that because of Christ in us, we needed to move forward together as a mm. unit. And so how do we do that? And um, for us, the time that we've spent together over these past 16 years, we've had a number of things we've had to decide whether or not to have children was a really big one for us, where we live, what jobs we have, how much money we make. And I'll tell you that this idea of mutuality, this idea that's centered on what we believe about the gospel and how Christ is working in both of us, that we are both in need of Christ to guide us as a couple means that we've never, ever, ever had to do a tiebreaker. We've never, ever, ever had to resent each other because we had to do it one person's way and not the other person's way. And it, we do a lot of premarital counseling and we tell our students that we work with, this works, this is time tested 16 years of marriage. We've never had, we've never been on different pages so much that we, that we couldn't move forward together as a couple. And that's, that's a real testament, I think, to mutuality being a real force in relationships is, is we've, we've just, we always believe that the Lord will get us on the same page as a couple because he's called us into covenant together yeah, yeah. relying on that and submitting to that and, and having to move forward, even if you're afraid and having to be totally. open to the mechanics of the Lord changing your heart. And of course, there's, there's some layers of depth to this, but generally speaking in our relationship and in my workspace as a woman, usually working with men in ministry, like these are principles that yeah. they just cross over again and again and again, and, and it works. The thing I love about the way that you tell your story and your journey is what is actually what we talk about, about Ephesians 5, mm -hmm. which is the most frustrating thing to me about 90% of what we talk about Ephesians 5. Our conversations begin with what does this mean for husbands and wives, not what is being said about Christ in the church. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing I love about the way that you tell your story, Erin, is it is Christocentric and it is cruciform in its nature. So even though there are pragmatics and practicalities, and I completely agree with you, like I've been married, you know, just for a, a little over a year. Um, but even in that, you're going like, oof, I do not know how you do this differently. But also the focus on your good days, moving from what, what are my rights or what is my role to who is Christ? And yeah. because of who Christ is, who then are we to be together? 
It's such a different question, right? Like it's yeah. such a different starting point and it completely changes the outworkings of then what happens relationally. Yeah. So yeah, those are both really powerful stories. So on season two of the Brave Marriage podcast, we have started kind of with an understanding of history. Then we've yes. moved into some theology and eventually we're going to get to the practicality. But yeah. I'm curious because you all have had some excellent conversations with theologians, with experts, scholars, Aaron, you becoming one of those yourself. Hey. I'll say that, but I'll say it. I'm wondering what's one thing each of you has learned since starting the podcast that's mm. excited you and taught you more about God, about Christ, about yeah. yourself. I don't mind. Can I go first? Yeah, <laughs> do, please do. <laughs> it's, it's connected to what I just said. It, it's the thing I've learned from having to, just the practice of doing the podcast is it is easy to fall into conversations that are not Christocentric. Like it's easy to find ourselves losing. I mean, we talk about this a lot. Like we've had recentering meetings where it's just like, part of our job is to make sure that Christ is at the center of yeah. what we're talking about. And I know I am, and I think I speak for you too, Erin, yeah. that like I'm deeply uninterested and unqualified mm -hmm. to do a podcast about another sociological category of justice or injustice. Although that is certainly important in the conversation, but the thing that we want to talk about, the thing we want to invite guests to talk about, and the thing that we hope people leave thinking or feeling or believing is that Christ is enough and that because of Christ, we live differently. And so that's what I've learned in the process is there's a difference between that being an abstract commitment and that being like having to be concretized in yeah. the working of the podcast. And yeah. then I will say this ad nauseum, my favorite interview we've ever done <laughs> is, um, is Natalie Carnes. She wrote a book called Motherhood of Confession. And I think it's a really, really important, beautiful book about what it means to be faithful to the communion of saints that have come before us while also carrying forward or rather leaving behind and being in conversation with some really tricky gender dynamics and politics. And for her particularly, that was with Augustine. And so hearing her talk about motherhood in that way, I thought was particularly beautiful and interesting and moving. Yeah, I definitely co-sign on, on a lot of that. Um, I don't know if I could go with Natalie Carnes being my favorite, but I get why she's yours. Oh, like, it was so fun. Natalie, if you're listening, we love you. I love her um, so much. We love you so much. Um, but I would say for me, just to add on to that, yeah. it would be the fact that I, I think for my generation, there's still a skepticism about whether or not the, the work and the scholarship that we're doing in, in egalitarian yeah. spaces is, is good scholarship. And what I have loved from just discovering and mining all these amazing people in their work is that the scholarship is, is good and it's fast and it's, it's, yeah. it's complex and, and faithful and faithful. Yes. Yeah. And so every time we turn around, there's somebody new doing good work and approaching these topics from different angles that just keep adding layers and layers to me of just feeling grounded in the work that we're doing, because we are truly wanting to be another resource where people find Christ and find the gospel and go deeper and deeper and deeper yeah. into the gospel, ultimately, at the through end the, the questions that they yes, are already through asking. the questions they're yeah. asking. And so, so that good scholarship piece is, is really important. Yeah, that's a great and answer. We wouldn't want to create content that we could poke holes in. So the fact that we've gotten to meet all of these wonderful, amazing who scholars, are really kind oh, as well, really great scholars and just wonderful people. That's been, that's been yeah, huge. Agreed. I mean, CBE puts out such good work and they have yeah. that solid scholarship. So I love that yeah. you guys are adding your voices and others to that. Yeah. Adding other voices to the podcast has been something that we could not have done on our own, but 
allows because now we have four sets of four including us four yeah four sets of co-hosts each exploring different avenues of gender theology so we have a group exploring global impact global justice global injustice what is happening with the spread of the gospel and and gender equality globally we have two lovely people talking about the pragmatics and talking with practitioners of mutual relationships between men and women yeah we have angela talking about intersectionality of race and gender and then us you know doing our shtick about uh <laughs> new about books and authors papers and, and all those things but it's so in, it's so important because it's like it's the same reason we ended up getting guests on us because we're like oh we're at the edge of what we can offer um and not be foolish in, mm-hmm. in yeah. our scope yeah. um so anyway i just thank you for bringing that up yeah yeah that is i find myself in that same place you know trying to teach as much as i can but being on the edge and so yeah. that's why i appreciate these conversations so much and just the wealth yeah. of knowledge that's there speaking of good scholarship aaron you are are you now a demon yes she is yes okay yes. congratulations okay so for for our listeners a doctorate <laughs> of ministry i have to do this because my students love that the shorthand for doctorate of ministry is demon that's they say it fast and they're like, you're a demon. This is great. Like it, it never, it never stops. I've just, you know, I it just never gets it. old. It, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's, yes, I am. I am a demon. Um, so I have a doctorate of ministry and that was just as of earlier this year. Congratulations. What, what I would love to hear is a little bit about your doctoral thesis. You did it on intimacy and emerging adulthood. And my husband works in higher ed. This is a marriage podcast, but I am curious, what was the background there? Um, because those relationships then inform how people are going into marriage mm-hmm. and yes. what I'm seeing in my office. Yes. I've been really meditating on this question so that I can be as brief as possible. Cause I really could talk all day about this. It is, it is, it is so dear to my heart, but uh, for, for a doctoral of ministry project, you have to do your thesis topic on something that is practical in your ministry context. And so I work with college students, which means I spend 80% of my time talking with them about their intimate relationships. Yeah. And the reason I choose a word like intimacy is because it is not just dating, sex, marriage topics. It is also friendship, mm-hmm. uh, roommates, community, and family. My 18 to 24 year olds are, are, are making these huge transitions with their families uh, from being a dependent to an independent and some of them in some, some really complex and sometimes toxic mm-hmm. situations. But all of that also ties in to those other intimacy spheres. So I look at three spheres of intimacy, the sort of romantic one, friendship, and then family. And I wanted a different way to talk to my students about this because what I have discovered is while there are a lot of resources, I mean, there's a new book every six months <laughs> coming out about Christian dating and marriage, right? And right. And, and all of them are good. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and the thing is, they do contain, like there's ones that contain some really helpful yeah. stuff. And yet- something is disconnecting, something isn't quite helping it. And I, and I had to try to get into pinpoint, but it's not producing more mature Christians. Mm. And so from my students, it doesn't seem to be making them uh, greater followers of Christ. There's a disconnect somewhere. Mm -hmm. So my research really focused on a theology of intimacy to say, okay, these resources that we have, first of all, they're typically one-sided. They're all about dating, sex, and marriage. I can hardly find anything for my emerging adults about friendship or about family transitions. So we're Mm -hmm. anemic in those areas and like overloaded in the other one. That's one problem. 
to, I'm just going to say it, my research produced a discovery that a lot of these voices are white culture centered. Mm -hmm. So my students of color are also having to mm -hmm. climb some extra walls in order to see this stuff pertain to their particular situations. Mm -hmm. And these books and resources tend to be more centered on cultural uh, narratives that uh, are reactionary. Hookup culture, reacting to purity culture, reacting to um, the sexual revolution, yeah. reacting to um, fundamentalism. Uh, fundamentalism, reacting to the Enlightenment, reacting to the Victorian era, and so on and so forth. And, and so I just wanted to sort of disconnect. I wanted my research to pull away from that yeah. and say, if we go back to scripture and ask questions about what is intimacy and is there a theology of intimacy in scripture? And if so, where is it? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when I started my research, I didn't know. I wasn't yeah. 100% sure. I believed there was a theology of intimacy in scripture, but I really didn't know what it was or where it was. Which I think is telling, right? That you've been a Christian your whole life and you're like, I know there's a theology of intimacy, yeah. but where is it? Exactly, exactly. And and again, uh, it's, it's easy to create a, a synonymous sort of idea about sex. And so intimacy yeah. and sex become interchangeable. And I wanted to, again, like disconnect that and unmoor that so that, so that we could study intimacy first and foremost from the lens of God's meta narrative yeah. of the gospel and what is happening in scripture and the story that we're entering into. And so it was fascinating research. And I got to see that what is ultimately missing is the gospel, the essential piece of like my, my students, they love Christ. They want yeah. to be faithful. Yeah. They're looking to be faithful. And yet for some reason, everything that we're leading them into is, is completely disconnected and cut adrift yep. from the very foundation cool. of their faith. And we're not, we're not starting there. We're starting somewhere yeah. else. And so we're giving them this sort of latent gift bag of, of good ideas, but it's not yeah. actually tying into their faith. So yeah. I presented my dissertation, um, everything went very well. And now I'm working to actually turn it into a book, something that like normal people read, um, not a doctoral <laughs> dissertation because who right. that's that's a, really, that's a no different one, experience. No yeah. one really wants to do that. That's just crazy. So I'm, I'm working to distill the information because I do believe mm -hmm. that for campus ministers like myself and for people in y'all's, in your profession and your husband's profession. And, um, we are all seeing the, the effects of this form of discipleship in different, uh, parts of the timeline. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, I believe that if we can begin working with emerging adults to create a holistic theology of intimacy, yeah. one that covers all three intimacy spheres and start with why God created us to connect in the first place, yeah. mm -hmm. and what, how that affects the way we understand the gospel, yeah. then we can begin to build out more nation specific yeah. um, content for these very particular phases of life from a different perspective. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. And if you want to keep up to date with Aaron's progress on that project, you should go to AaronFMonez.com. Thank plug. you for that. And plug. sign up mm -hmm. for the yeah. newsletter that she sends out every month. Yeah. Cause she won't plug herself. Yeah, listener, she is looking so uncomfortable right now. So thank you, Blake, for adding that in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I would love your all's commentary on this. Oh. So about a month ago, 
Evan and I and others were hosting a relationship and sexuality panel. And for the first time, we did a section on relationships and then Mm. sex and the feedback Mm. that we got, because we were seeing the same thing, right? Like there's a need for some foundation before we get to this stuff. And the feedback we got was, well, we could do without the intimacy and relationship stuff. Thank you. We would just like to spend all this time talking about sex. (laughs) So thoughts on that. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yes. Sexy is what sells. Like it just, yeah, that's my thoughts as well. (laughs) It just, it just really, there's, there's a, it's not, um, it's not some sort of weird thing that we have all these resources talking about sex and marriage and dating. And we're not talking about the other things that really truly are, are, are less sexy and less, less prone to make those, those top lists. But, but I also think that culturally, we have over-sexualized every, true. right? Like I, I, I see you Blake Dane, because I know we, we both feel about yep. this. Like we have already over-sexualized and saturated every aspect, which, which is really disappointing to me as, as, as someone in the church who I believe should be running counter-cultural to this. It's a very secular idea to over-sexualize yeah. people, to over-sexualize topics, to over-sexualize these presentations. And so now we feel like the world revolves around sex Mm -hmm. instead of the fact that sex is a part of our human identity. And unless we know the way to be human and and flourishing as a human, which goes back to the foundational pieces, then sex is is going to become a false priority that we're never going to be able to get right because we have already situated it out of order with how we understand ourselves and our communities. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say it's out of order. It's, it's, yes, it's not as fun to sit around and talk about the bigger bones of intimacy. And also like, whether it be talking about sex or sexuality, those are hot button issues, right? And, and in a really legitimate way, all of us are really concerned about those questions. And we're really mm-hmm. concerned about the implications for those answers. Sure. So, and, I, and I think that's a really good thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I do think in some senses, we got to eat our vegetables before we can dig into the steak. You know what I mean? And I think you're right, Erin. There's a, there's a wanting to rush to the, to the thing we really want answers to before this, I'm going to be so annoying. There's a reason methodology is important. Like, and I know that all of us are like, no, we hated our research methods class, but there's a reason that's important, right? Because you can't ask, you can't ask your question until you know what context you're asking your question in and what is being implied in the question that you're asking, what you're assuming in the question that you're asking. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to deconstruct and, and we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. 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 Blake, what you were talking about actually reminded me of isogeting versus exegeting. Can you go into that a little bit and the importance of Yes. So this is important with, with gender theology. It's important with theology of intimacy stuff and, and, and just, I think, theology in general. But we don't often talk about how to detect the difference between taking um, a passage or a theological idea or a scripture and, and starting with a presupposition that is, that is centered on the person reading or interpreting. So, so eisegesis is to superimpose yeah our own ideas onto these passages or or, or theological concepts instead of removing ourselves and and exegeting, which is more allowing the content to inform us and to shape us. So instead of us shaping the content, the content shapes and forms up. And and that's, I mean, that's that's more like layman's terms. And I'm, I'm sure there are theologians who could speak much more eloquently on that, but, yeah. but it, it is a dangerous game because um, learning the difference 
helps the way we read theological content coming uh, through social media and articles and magazine articles and podcasts and YouTube videos. I think we would be, we would be amiss if we didn't, if I didn't acknowledge that I think there is a temptation when there's a fear of being isogetical versus exegetical. There is a temptation to assume that we've removed ourselves far more than we actually have. Mm -hmm. And so to only talk about other people's eisegesis versus our own. Yes. I think that, I think you're exactly right, Aaron, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that like, I actually can only read the text through the lens lens that I have. And so the important thing is not to deny that I have a lens. It's actually to acknowledge that I do. Yes. Right. And so, and to be charitable listeners to those who don't share that lens. And that may mean that I'm uncomfortable. And so that's one point. And the other thing is, I think for me in a really pragmatic way is what I had someone look at me when talking about gender theology and he totally didn't agree with me, but I think this was a fabulous question. Before we were sitting down to talk about, I don't know, like first Timothy two or whatever, he was like, what are your guardrails? Like, what are the things that your reading is disciplined by? And my answer to that would be the authority of scripture, mm-hmm. the person of Christ and the church's creeds. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to do it perfectly, right. um, yeah. but it does mean that we're not walking in to read a text that can be troubling. And so how to sit in the difficulty of it while also submitting ourselves to the word of God as the word of God. Um, But also acknowledging that like, oh, I have some, I have some dissonances, whether it's cultural, whether it's Mm -hmm. um, ethical, whether it's whatever. And so for me not to acknowledge it, that would maybe mean that I'm explaining the text away to create a different level of integration within myself rather than acknowledging the dissonances and the complicatedness of the text. Sure making it easy to keep going with your own biases and not be formed going back to that discipleship piece, like not being formed by scripture in the way that we need to. Can we take this down to a practical level and talk about Ephesians five? So we love it. Or actually the book of Ephesians. So let's maybe give both ends of the spectrum, a a quote unquote conservative and liberal as a Jesus. (laughs) What would that look like compared to staying true to Christ and what Paul intended? Oh. Do you want to be conservative or do you want to be liberal? Oh gosh, I could be either. Do you have a leaning? No, I don't care. You okay. choose and then I'll do the other. All one. right. Well, I'm the female, so I might as well go with everything <laughs> I'm going to go and I'll be liberal. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be liberal. And you can I love conservatively it. Okay. We can stick with our gender roles. There. Great. Yeah. So I think a, a liberal interpretation, and there's a spectrum here. So if we're going to go yep. particularly extreme down a progressive stance, it's going to say that there is a cultural context that completely discounts yeah any applicability of Ephesians with our modern lives that ultimately that it's just sort of thrown out um, in general because that context is so disconnected from us that it has focused on the specific community that is being written to that we shouldn't we should just disregard it. There, there's no application of it for our for our lives. Yes, there's nothing for us. Um, I think maybe in a little bit being fair to a more moderate progressive view, it would probably be that what's being understood, we're probably going to hone in on the word submission. And instead of finding that in the larger context of scripture and how that fits into the cruciform following of Christ as a, as a beautiful picture, not a harmful picture, we're probably going to focus on the word submission and we're probably going to water that down or explain that away as much as possible so that we don't have to deal with it. So I think, and there's, there's, there's a spectrum there, yeah. more liberal progressive views of that, but I would say probably that's, that's going to be the most common ones I'm going to see come up. Yeah, I would say, again, I do think there's kind of a myriad of better and worse kind of conservative arguments on this. I think the most eisegetical 
argument would be mostly read from a male perspective. So we're going to really hone in on what is required of the woman in Ephesians 5, particularly. We're going to really ignore any cultural context and we're going to, we're going to receive it as this is for us right now um, and kind of ignore the church of Ephesus altogether. Now we won't do that in every chapter of Ephesians, but it, just Ephesians 5. Yeah, right. And, right. and, um, and we really like the heading cuts off, submit to one another in love. That's a really clean break. And yeah. And like the, we just assume that husbands will love their wives, but we don't assume that wives will love their husbands. So we need to, we need to remind people of that. And that's going to fit into um, a binary of particular kinds of masculinity and particular kinds of femininity. And so it, it extends past even the marital relationship into what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be different than one another and what it means to be a leader. So those are great examples of eisegeting on both ends of the spectrum. Now, give me what your all's, at least, exegesis of the text would be. Oh, and this is such a longer conversation. But number one, I think submit to one another in love is a guiding principle in the passage. Um, Our translations, if you've listened to anyone talk about this passage, you've probably heard this ad nauseum. But it's like our current printings of the Bible like to smack a header in there. Um, but it's in the it's in a really coherent context that kind of makes it inappropriate. And that the word, like in that following verse, wives submit to your husbands, the word submit isn't there. It's referencing it's so wives to your husband. So it's deeply dependent on submit to one another in love. It's verse 22 borrows nice. a word from 21. Yeah, that's that a better way to say that. <laughs> Yay. So it's a lot of people don't know that in the original Greek, the word submit doesn't appear in verse 22. Yeah. Wives submit to your husbands actually isn't what's written in the original text. Mm-hmm. It's wives, yeah, like like I said, let wives also do your husbands. The only reason we know that the word submit is appropriate there is because we're borrowing it from verse yeah. 21. But in the original Greek, we don't have paragraphs. That is something that we do in English translations to help sort the information better. And to separate 521 from 522 in paragraphs, which you'll see in almost every single English translation yeah. of our Bible, is an interpretive choice that says these two verses shouldn't be together. We shouldn't start by talking about mutual submission. We start by talking about wives submission, but you can't actually do that faithfully when you realize that 22 and 21 are rhetorically linked by that word submit. So we're sort of bound to say, well, what does 21 submit to each other inform about the beginning of the wives wives and husbands husbands. also (laughs) and i think this is wow this is so much more complicated than the way i'm about to say it but husbands love your wives as christ has loved the church the way that christ loves the church is by giving up himself (laughs) so there's there's a self there's a cruciform nature to the husband and wife relationship and dynamic and and we can have kind of discussions about what that means about hierarchy what that means about headship but i i would rather start there and say that the passage is really, really, really clear that the the marital relationship is in some way imaging Christ in the church Mm -hmm. and that Christ really disrupts some of our images of what it means to be a head or what it means to be a leader or what it means to be powerful. In Christ, that is made paradoxical yeah in a beautiful way and that's the kingdom of heaven yeah we don't have to get rid of the word this the idea of submission no submission is really beautiful and important important. to to our christianity but um the idea of taking the word head and really focusing on that is a husband is head of the wife in a context and going back to to looking at the biblical context i think what i what i tend to pull out is saying paul doesn't have to make a statement about hierarchy because the people that he is talking to 
a hierarchy already exists. Paul isn't establishing a hierarchy within marriage because the hierarchy within marriage culturally is already really intense, yeah. like really intense because male superiority to female, and well, to be honest, the inferiority of everyone to males and in the household codes is very well established. So the only way this passage can be read for that original audience is subversively because Husbands are supposed to love their wives? Like that's yeah. a really subversive idea for the original audience. When we read with Western lens, yeah. we, we tend to kind of miss how how intense that that sort of subversive language is. It's it's actually a, a passage that challenges and kind yeah. of reciprocity between husbands and wives, which was pretty unheard of. Yeah. The church was sort of writing a new way for interpersonal relationships, ultimately mm-hmm. because it's saying you are embodying a piece of what it of the church. Your yeah. your relationships are a testament. They are a witness to the the subversive power dynamics of Christ. Mm-hmm. So there's a Philippians 2 yeah. uh, aspect that we have yeah. to bring in when we're talking about submission and how Christ mirrors that. And then it just resituates the whole passage beautifully for us to say, how do we model the gospel in this most intimate and covenant of relationships? Or even more importantly, how does Christ change the way that we think about ourselves, yeah. our bodies, and our relationships? That like yeah. that that feels like a very Pauline mm-hmm. concern to me. Like that mm-hmm. that is what Paul, I mean, that's first Corinthians, that's Ephesians. Like this, mm-hmm. this is his concern, right? Is the gospel that we have given you is not in vain, but because of the gospel, everything has changed. And we can disagree about like maybe how that changes, how that's subversive. But I think that's always my question mm-hmm. yeah. um, when talking to people about Ephesians 5. is like, we, sometimes we get way, way, way caught up in roles and that makes it a lot about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about Christ first. Yeah. I just think that gives a different vantage point. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to go back to maybe tie in a bunch of things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> going back to your, your research, Erin, when you were saying what you found was missing was the gospel from what we're teaching about relationships. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what, that's what I've been finding as well, that for the past few years, you know, Evan and I have really been wrestling with that. I've heard a lot of other people in this space saying that, like everyone is kind of seeing the same thing. What we're teaching is untethered from the gospel. Yeah. And so what do we do with that? But all of that going into my next question is, all of us are sort of wrestling through this. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, it can be a bit challenging in marriage to figure out how to move out of just some of the things that we've been inundated with in our culture yeah. Yeah. and figuring out like, how do we really stay true to the gospel as we live yeah. out our own marriages? So I'm wondering if you guys could speak to yeah. maybe the way mutuality has shaped your marriages in their different stages, but yeah. also if you can think of anything, maybe what you've hit up against that you've had to wrestle through. Aaron, you shared some of that earlier, but. I, again, my ripe one year of marriage, but I will say like, I, you know, I'm an idealistic 20 something. And so marriage has been a really beautiful, wonderful refining fire for, there are things that I hold really dear and close and I'm quite convicted about mutuality being one of them, but having to really consider the needs of someone else when you're exhausted is a different thing. Like, you know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. I was going to say, to answer your question, it's more, I think mutuality is more often displayed in its beauty and Christocentric form from my wife, Erin, not Erin Moniz. I'm married to a different Erin. And I, in the reconciliation after maybe it wasn't on the forefront, 
And um, because and I, I I just I always think about Paul's line in that it's like we've been called to the ministry of reconciliation, and I feel that in marriage. And that doesn't mean that like we're fighting every evening. It just means like oh man, I just got really frustrated with you because you did whatever, mm-hmm. or you my needs weren't considered, or and maybe this is more particular for the men listening. The thing that I've been surprised by is no matter how much I intellectually assent to mutuality, how in my body I can repeat generational familiar and cultural patterns of embodied patriarchy, whether that be like just sitting on the couch, scrolling on my phone, not considering that that Aaron is going to want to clean the house if it's messy or whatever, you know, all of those kind of gross gender disparities that on paper, I'm like, mm, rejected. It's like embodies, like it takes a sense of discipline to work out some of the things I didn't know were in my kind of in my body or in my, like when I'm tired. Yeah. That answers. Oh, it absolutely does. Well, and I'm thinking too, when you're saying like the, there's a discipline there that's required and I really appreciate your intentionality there. But even what I see is there's, there has to be a self-awareness before there's that intentionality and discipline. Totally. So I'm, I'm curious, how have you developed that self-awareness is it is it through introducing different resources to your Mm. or is it just seeing your interactions with your wife Erin yeah it's I mean Erin is beautiful and will call me out of my crap (laughs) that's the real answer um she's awesome but I think also it's kind of what we were talking about with Isaac Jesus which is like in his grace the Lord has really through the podcast through just my abstract interest in gender dynamics and gender theology I run up against a dissonance between what I think and what I embody in those moments. Yeah. And so it's in that, it's in that tension, it's in that dissonance where I then have the choice to be unintegrous or to be disciplined. Right. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so for me, the resources were less pragmatic and it was more, okay, so what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be in a Christocentric relationship? What it, what it, what does Christ call us to? What did Christ do for us for those he loves Mm -hmm. and then then what do we do for each other and then honestly like reading like atlantic articles about like housework disparity will do it too (laughs) it'll sober you right up it will go read some stats On the flip side of that, just as you were sharing, um, thinking about my own experience, I've been married for nine years and recognizing some of those things as well and how the framework I'd come from or yeah, yeah, I've had to pressure my own development, Mm. you know, like on the flip side of being the woman and kind of having these expectations coming out of some complementarian teaching. There's a lot of, uh, there's, I think there's a lot of self-development for both parties is what I'm trying to say in very Mm -hmm. different ways. There's also a process, I think, again, in a very early stage, you can actually probably speak this more in how to release the pressure of the role while still maintaining your own identity. I think that's, that's been an interesting thing. And what I mean by that is there are certain ways that I'm naturally embodying a sense of intensity, or I'm really, I talk a lot, or I have a lot of thoughts, feelings, and opinions about things. I grew up in a family where I learned to take up space. Mm -hmm. And so how to hold those things with integrity while also caring about the impact of those things on on those I love and knowing how that's culturally situated and situated in dynamics. No, absolutely. And and this is this is ongoing. Um, my husband and I have been just thinking about this and tweaking this for years because one of the things we'd love to do is do premarital counseling. And and of course we work with college students and thinking more and more about how we can help set them up 
for these orienting principles, because in one sense, we want to help them manage expectations about house chores, right? Like figuring mm. out who's going to do the dishes and who's going to mow the lawn and why we set up our households that way and, and what that's going to be pragmatically. But we always start with a session that, that deep dives into a theology of marriage that, that puts everything back to what is your marriage about and for why has Christ created you? Why has Christ called you? What is the gospel? And it just very much centers there because we're like, you know, at the end of the day, figuring out how to divide the chores is great. And it's going to make for a great household for you guys to be able to, to live well together yeah. under the same roof. And there's a lot of just merging that happens in those first several years that we're going to give you some pragmatic sex. We're going to give you some, some boots on the ground stuff, but at the end of the day yeah. when it's the worst when your sin has invaded the the most lovely thing in your life it is the gospel mm-hmm. it is christ that is actually going to save your marriage because marriage while wonderful is a master's class in grace and so you, you need to be able to forgive how are you going to be able to do that if you are not deeply connected to the fact that you are forgiven yeah how are you going to be able to forgive yourself and not go into guilt and shame spirals that will continue <laughs> to affect your marriage even after your sin if you're not coming back to the gospel and how can we draw each other back to the light of that mm-hmm. gospel in those moments if we are not deeply entrenched yeah. in the gospel so we just we just appeal to all of our couples that we work with we just we start there because at the end of the day the practical stuff like there's some great resources for that like we'll walk through that we'll manage expectations together we'll figure out families and holidays and all those things <laughs> but at the end of the day just getting back to yeah. the gospel again and again and again and we believe that we do that for our marriages the way we do that just for our own spiritual life you need community you need people you need spiritual mentors you need therapists you need, I was about to say that church right <laughs> I was about to say so someone very lovely like we Aaron and I have been seeing like a couple's counselor because she's finishing her PhD and someone connected us and it's free which is great but I don't know I wouldn't have saw that out because we're not in crisis you know what I mean like there's there's a sense that like couples counseling is for when you're in crisis and it's awesome like that's another way that helps you be see yourself is go to therapy yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. thank you for that plug like you're welcome it's like please friends uh check out our lovely host because you can do the work when you're not in crisis yeah yeah exactly so you need you need layers you need your own personal relationship with Christ you need personal spiritual development you need a relationship um individually where you're coming back back to the gospel yeah. again and again. You need to have a gospel life within your household with the person that you're married to, with your family and what that looks like there. And then you need people who are in that inner circle, people mm-hmm. that can speak into your marriage, people that can keep you on track because there is a lot to deconstruct. There, there are lies to be mm-hmm. rooted out um, <laughs> and to, to put all of that on one individual yep. or their spouse yep. is right. a lot, is and a that, lot, lot. That circles back to your question about that event that y'all did is everything that you just said is actually way more about intimacy than it is about sex. Mm-hmm. In the sense that it's like friendship, spiritual community. And there's a level of intimacy and trust for somebody to be able to say, like, I only have certain people in my world that I'm, that know that they have permission to go, yo, I don't, I don't think that was a good move or you're really frustrated. And I don't want to invalidate that, but also I think you're being selfish. Well, you know what I mean? Like that requires a level of intimacy that. Yeah. And, And are we training couples to be intentional about seeking that out? Are we helping couples be intentional about building those relationships and what that looks like? And our yeah. churches helping us? Uh, yeah. That's a whole other soapbox I won't get on today. But it's there's there's layers to this. But at the at, at the end of it, like how we stay centered on the gospel is a 
is both an individual responsibility and a community endeavor. And um, I just don't know if all of us are are in a place where we have all of those pieces. And so it's it's important, more important than ever, that we're talking about this and that church leaders and, and practitioners and people are coming to the table to say, how do we how do we create these environments? Because I think we'll see yeah. the rate of marriage, we will see human flourishing because yeah. we are we are diving a little bit deeper into these concepts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said in the beginning, I'm really glad that you guys are. I'm really thankful for your work and you all have partnered with CBE International. And I would love for you guys just to share here at the end what that means. And Blake, you, you talked about that a little bit earlier, but what you would hope that my audience would gain by tuning into the Mutuality Matters podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You want me to take this one? You got it. Okay. I have been a longstanding (laughs) member with CBE and, and I have, I have loved them a long time and I, and I appreciate because if you go to their mission and values section and you see what their priorities are and where they are rooted, I believe there are very few Mm -hmm. institutions that are saying the things they're saying that are, that are walking the lines that they're walking and that are, that are staying within those guardrails as Blake puts it, um, to attempt to see yeah, gospel empowerment um, for, for men and women on the earth. And they've got a blog and they've got a magazine and they've got an, a, an academic peer-reviewed journal. So no matter where you are, like the scholarship and the accessibility is there. And now we have the podcast, which yeah. is just another medium feeding um, into all these, all these wonderful resources that already exist. Also there are conferences. Um, I think the next one's going to be in Atlanta. They just made an announcement about it. So the registration is going to open in January. People should put that on their radar, um, especially if you're here in the South, but they really work hard to stay faithful to the gospel while trying to bring as many different people to the table as possible for these discussions. And their global impact is amazing. The receipts that they have on how this work (laughs) is impacting people. Right. It's, yeah. it's really incredible. And it's just really wonderful. And we, Mimi Haddad, who, who's, who's currently the, the CEO is just an incredible person, incredible scholar. And we, we are so thankful to her that she let this little ragtag, yeah. you know, group that is us um, yeah. come and, and, uh, and work with, work with them, partner with them yeah. to, to expand the podcast and, and, and take us under their umbrella. We feel particularly blessed that they, they saw in us some, some parallels with their own yeah. mission and, and decided to, to take a chance. So, so the way that it works is each co-host team has a episode come out once a month. So you'll hear from us once a month. You'll hear from Angela once a month. You'll hear from our other friends once a month. And I, I hope a couple of things. Number one, I hope that people love Jesus more after listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And then I also hope that people are reminded of the beauty amidst the pain in the body of Christ globally. And that we we are all connected together only because of Christ. But I also love about the multi-host platform thing mm-hmm. yeah. is you're getting every corner. So if if we talk to an author that you're like, nope, not my jam, then just wait till next week. And yeah. Rob and Rob and Layla are going to bring on some people talking about really boots on the ground things. Glad for the range of voices. And I mean, yeah. I think it just speaks to mutuality matters, right? Come on. Like exactly. having that reciprocity and having all of the voices speaking to this. So yeah. Again, really appreciate you guys. Thank you yeah. so much for your time. Thanks for being on the podcast. So and fun. listeners, go check out the Mutuality Matters podcast. Thanks, guys. Love is not a battle. Love is not a battle.
Just as fragile as it is 